Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Lexi. And my name's Sam. Who are you? My name is Bryn Gleason. Why are you here? Why are we talking? What do you do? I am a artist, a printmaker, former uh, bartender, and we're going to talk about art and Whoa. drink beer. And, yeah. And we know you, right? Like we, we know you? Or I believe are... so. Oh, okay. There, there okay. was a time cool. and a place where we all worked <laughs> together and oh. became great friends. And then there was another drunken time where we got Sriracha cock tattooed on our ankles. Twice. And forearms. Twice. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I would I would say we know each other. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're going to we're going to talk all about Bryn's art. We're going to learn a little bit more about her. Um, followers of Heavy Hops know that uh, it is her artwork that is a part of the logo and the episodes every week. And on top of that, Bryn has made artwork for Scorched Tundra for the last two editions. So it's a real, real pleasure to have her on the show and to give her a voice in uh, in our world here. I would say so. So Bryn, you want to take the reins here? Yeah. Let's dive and get heavy. All right. Hey, uh, hey, Bryn, welcome to Heavy Hops. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, we've all known each other for a very long time now, uh, whether we were colleagues uh, in past lives or <laughs> friends going out and hanging out. Um, sriracha tattoos and... Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but before we give the backstory, should we talk about the beverages that we're enjoying? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I am uh, just cracked open and pouring a Bell's Double Two-Hearted Ale, Ooh. which, uh, thank you, Alexi, for this beer, because you know that I like uh, Bell's Two-Hearted, one of my original go-to beers. Um, and this one's just hoppier and boozier, I would say. You probably have more insight <laughs> into it than I do. <laughs> I think but, that was uh, the point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, what are you guys drinking? I'm sipping on some canned tuna here, which I can also thank Alexi for for picking that up at Half Acre last time we were there. Um, canned tuna. Uh, it's yeah, that's the joke. Just tuna from Half Acre. But it, oh, it, okay. It, yeah, get it, get it, canned tuna. Yeah, no, I like, kind of yeah. like that. That would be a fun <laughs> beer name, but I don't know if like fishy is something you want to really associate. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. What do you got, Alexi? I'm drinking, uh, this would be a very, like, Bryn beer, actually, uh, as far as, like, something that's very bitter and something that has, like, a big citrus profile. It's from Beachwood in California. Uh, mm. It is a citra-hopped uh, West Coast-style IPA. Super bitter, very uh, citrusy. Like, it's fucking awesome I, I i'm so glad that we can get their beers here in chicago and it's like a style that particular type of ipa was the type of like beer that got me into craft beer in a lot of ways was like those big west coast bitter uh ipas and i think that that's something that was similar with you Bryn. like that's a profile that you gravitate towards mm -hmm. uh and that's why it's a Bryn beer, right? 
Yeah, definitely the first kind of beer, first craft beer uh, that I got into. And to an extent, like, got stuck in. Like, I really enjoy a lot <laughs> of different kinds of beers. Um, actually, thanks to you, Alexi, like, from uh, beer, beer 101 stuff and back when we worked together in the service industry, learning so much more about beer and the process, um, I found it a lot more interesting to taste different styles, and I enjoy different styles. But at the end of the day, I'm still, I just go to the super hoppy, super crisp. Not a fan of the super hazy most of the time, though. Like, there's way too much of those out there now. Bring back the Brin beers. Yeah. Popped up and crisp. Refreshing, <laughs> bitter. Let's go. <laughs> Bring it back. Yeah. Yep. Um, you alluded to a time that we were in the service industry. Why don't you uh, get get folks uh, up to speed with uh, who you are and how you ended up in the service industry? Cool. Um, I am Bryn Gleason. I am a visual artist, uh, previously bartender. Um, I got into the service industry in a fashion that a lot of young people do um, is a way to pay for something else. And uh, that's when I started college. Um, college can be rather expensive, turns out. Um, and waiting tables just seemed like the perfect fit because I was in school all day. Um, I knew, I thought it was something that I'd be good at and something I would enjoy. I loved food. Um, I was actually newer to beverage at the time because I was, I just turned 18. Um, so, you know, I started drinking like Jameson at parties, but like <laughs> as far as uh, refined beverage, I had no palate for it at all, um, nor much knowledge, which made uh, waiting tables downtown Minneapolis very challenging. I learned how to think on my feet and, uh, make educated guesses and then uh, study and figure out what I was talking about. Um, but yeah, I sort of kind of eh, almost kind of like found myself in college, I would say. Um, I didn't really, I didn't grow up wanting to go to college at all. Um, I was actually kind of terrified of it, um, which maybe like sidebar but growing up, I didn't want to go because it just sounded like really difficult, which college is uh, challenging, which might seem weird to you guys because I, I like to think of myself as a person who strives after like new challenges and uh, trying new things and, and seeing what I can do. Um, but I, I am someone with dyslexia. And so as a kid, I thought like uh, that just wasn't in the cards for me. Um, but my mother pushed me to apply for the post-secondary education option where, uh, if you apply through that program and get into college while you're in high school, um, your tuition is free while you're still in high school. So I applied and I got in and I was like, well, fuck, now I guess I have to go. And I figured I would take like a class or two and just kind of see how it goes and you know suffer through it and then like if I ever want to go to college someday I'll have some uh, free credit and I started and I realized um, that it was something I could do and uh, to use an Alexi term I am somewhat of a completionist I don't like to leave things half done and I don't like to half-ass things either so once I started school I was like all right I'm I got to do this I got to figure out how to pay for it 
Um, I, I was a maniac um, at the time because I was like, I became a teaching assistant. So I would get up super early. I would get to the printmaking studio to set up before uh, all the other students would come in at like eight or eight thirty in the morning after commuting like an hour to campus. And then I would uh, be a teaching assistant for a studio class, which is like a three hour uh, block of time. And then I'd stay after to clean up after the students. And then I would go to my classes all day and be in lectures all day. And then I would go over to the Loring Pasta Bar in Dinkytown, Minneapolis, and wait tables all night. Um, and then if I got cut by like 11 or 1130 and had my side work done, I would hop on a bus and like book it back to campus. Because if I got into the printmaking studio um, before the doors locked at midnight, then I could like hide from the janitors and print all night long with the other crazy printmaker students that stayed up all night. And then in between those things, I would literally just like roll myself like a log up to a building and like take a nap on campus wherever I could. I wish I still had that much energy. It was amazing. What um, was it about? Uh, what was it about like uh, printmaking uh, that drew you in originally and like gave you that third wind in your day? Um, well, so copper etching is what I uh, intaglio copper etching printmaking is what I specialize in, and I I'm trying to remember. I think it was my second year or second semester. I don't remember. It wasn't the first class that I took, but I took a printmaking class. I had never heard about printmaking. A friend of mine had recommended I check it out. Um, so I signed up and I took a printmaking class at the University of Minnesota and I learned about um, the copper etching process first and I fell in love with it. I had one of those um, aha moments, which I was listening to your podcast with uh, about music retail and they were talking about when you like come into the shop and you test out acoustic guitars and you find that guitar that makes that sound that you have in your brain that you don't know how to describe and you have that aha moment i was like yeah i had that with printmaking um but so anyways uh with printmaking it was a really different process that i had than i had ever done before um some artists absolutely love it and some absolutely hate it. It's a lot more tedious and less direct than um, drawing or painting is. Do you, maybe should I backtrack and like explain, maybe I'll explain etching really fast in a nutshell. Um, in a nutshell, copper etching, you take a copper plate and you put an acid resist on that plate and then you draw your image through that acid resist. So you can draw all your little tiny details rather than carving it into the copper, which is harder uh, to do. Once you get all of your details and you um, needle that plate for hours and hours, you take that whole piece of copper and you submerge it in uh, ferric chloride acid, which is a corrosive with copper. So all those little tiny lines and marks that you made, the acid then eats into the plate. So then your image is now etched into the metal. Uh, then you take the, the plate out of the acid, you wash off that acid resist, and you apply ink to the plate, and then you polish off the surface. Um, and then your end result is the ink in the below surface uh, of the plate. 
You then take that and you run it through an old school etching press with um, a really thick dampened paper. It's dampened for flexibility. And we run through the press, a ton, a ton, a ton of pressure is put down sandwiching the copper and that plate together, creating this uh, unique embossment and texture while transferring the ink over to the paper. So it has a really, really unique, beautiful um, aesthetic that I was like hypnotized by. Um, and the process was completely unique. When I pulled my first uh, proof print in the studio, I literally like stood there holding it up, staring at it with my mouth open for like several minutes. I was like, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my fucking life. This is awesome. Um, so I changed majors and and dove dove into printmaking. Um, it's it's really hard to to describe printmaking and how people understand it without them seeing it. Um, so anyone who is listening to this who is curious what the hell I'm talking about, uh, I would encourage you to check out any printmaking studio, but specifically the Chicago Printmakers Collaborative here in Chicago. It's run by really amazing woman named Deborah. Um, they have classes right now. A lot of the stuff is remote and online, but you can just go check out the artwork that's on the walls. You can tour the studio. You can take a class. Um, it's magical. I think every artist should try it because it was like blew my mind uh, when I learned how to do printmaking. So in our, uh, in, when people can find this in our episode notes, uh, yeah. there's a piece that you've got here called uh, ocean scene number six one eight, which is oh, yeah. <laughs> which is very close to six six six, and I'm kind of disappointed <laughs> it isn't. But but I I have to accept that uh, you know that you decided to number it that way. Is this an <laughs> is this something that's like an early uh, an early print on your part? So that was my very first um, print. That was my first etching ever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I threw it in there. We don't need to like you know, psychoanalyze it. Um, it was something that I had drawn several years earlier and I took my first printmaking class when I was 17 or 18. So the image itself is quite old and the subject matter um, is, you know, from a, from a childhood romance, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and that one too, that piece I had just learned line etching. I hadn't gotten into aquatint, which is like the, the tonal quality that you see in a lot of my other etchings, or um, spit bite aquatint, which is where rather than putting your copper plate into the acid, you put the acid onto your plate. So you can take more of a painterly approach to etching um, and like throw, throw the acid and paint with it. And it's called spit bite because um, like when the process was first uh, started, uh, artists would actually spit in a cup with their acid to make it thicker so that they could paint it on the plate and it wouldn't just run right off. So they'd have more control. I have tried this just because. You want to be a part to. of your art. You got <laughs> yeah, exactly. to know. Try you got to um, know. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, uh, I, I like the acid to kind of like run across the plate and I'll, I'll play with like the acid and then water to get it to move around um, a bit more. I don't want it to like stay in one spot. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's stick with, with your bio here for a second. And so 
one of the things that you really that I learned a lot from you about was your interest in agave spirits and I yeah. found so many cool uh, correlations between the production of agave spirits uh, specifically like the traditional method of uh, production and spontaneous fermentation which is something that I really love in relation to lambic production so how did you find these uh, agave spirits and what was the was there like a challenge that kind of set you there or was it um, sometimes you find these things because you master your knowledge of something else and you're looking for a new horizon to learn about and yeah um, I, I like that you brought up the correlation of like the process um, of like tequila and mezcal I feel like there are actually a lot of correlations with uh, printmaking, uh, which I hadn't really thought about before. Just the the old school, like traditional, tedious, hands-on methods um, that are oftentimes like pushed aside when mass mass production happens. Where like most most all tequilas that we drink here in the states. Um, are are not using the traditional methods. They're using like um, uh, they're like macerating the agaves and crushing them in in different ways that are faster, shredding the agaves to get the juice out. Where with like authentic uh, mezcals, which not all of them are authentic anymore, but like they're using like the big tohono wheel and crushing the agaves like slower, and like a horse or a donkey is like pulling that wheel. Um, and I find that to be really kind of awesome because there are such subtle, unique flavors um, and a quality that you get from those traditional processes um, that you just don't get with uh, like the average super crazy mass produced spirit. And I would say the same thing with uh, with some artwork. There's there's amazing digital art out there and I've made digital art myself, but you'll never get that same authentic quality um, drawing something on an iPad that you could get if you were to like etch it into copper, if that was what you were going for. And I think that printmaking is definitely one of those um, processes that are like kind of dead and then artists have like resurrected the process and used it um as a fine art form where like printmaking uh like sorry i'm getting all over the place but like yeah, that's good. uh like <laughs> newspapers were all printed from stones and like stone lithography like that's just how newspapers were printed um and there were like real printmakers uh processing those stones and obviously um that's just not efficient anymore so everything is one digitally printed and now like stuff is hardly even printed anymore because everyone gets stuff from social media and from a screen now um but anyways yeah so back to your question um how did i get into agave spirit well okay <laughs> let's, let's let's do it this way because you actually brought up some really awesome points that are worth diving into yeah so and and as our listeners know diving is what we do uh on heavy mm -hmm. hops so wait we, let's we dive for a we second dive? We, and we get heavy too oh heavy. yeah there we go <laughs> um, so that's it uh i i hadn't even thought of the correlation between the traditional methods of production of agave spirits and then your mm -hmm. correlation with uh 
etching, printmaking, um, and like the the history of printmaking too. And then you throw in like my weirdo spontaneous fermentation business too. <laughs> Had you like articulated at the time that there was actually a correlation between mezcal and the um, and the printmaking processes that were of interest? Do you think that it may have been like a subliminal thing? Because these things <laughs> happen subliminally too before we can articulate them. I, I or did you have an subliminal. aha moment on our show? <laughs> I, I had a little <laughs> bit of an aha moment, yeah. Um, uh, but printmaking came before Mezcal in my timeline. Because when I discovered printmaking, I was waiting tables. And uh, it was when I graduated college that I was like, uh, you know, I, I had committed when I started going to school that I was going to go to school to be an artist. And I was fully aware that I may have to pay back all of my student debt by working in a restaurant. And that was my plan. Um, and it worked out. I paid, I paid off my debt. Um, anyways, so... <clears throat> It was after I had graduated college and I had been, you know, waiting tables at this restaurant for four years and I was used to having like three jobs at once while I was in school. All of a sudden I had all this free time and I wasn't studying anymore. I was like, I want to put more information in my young little brain and uh, work way too much because why not? That's what I'm used to. Um, so I started working at like uh, a couple of different bars and restaurants. I worked at a concert venue. I tried a brunch place that was not for me at the time. Um, I was kind of bouncing around trying a volume spot. But I really, really wanted to bartend because I wanted to get into that hands-on creative side of the restaurant. I didn't want to just bring drinks and food to the table. It was like I wanted to, uh, I honestly, I wanted to either make drinks or cook, but I wanted to make front of house money and I wanted to socialize and the bartenders seemed to have like that perfect niche for me. I was like, that's what I want to do. But I had no experience. Um, so I started applying wherever I could in most places that I was really interested in, had really cool like craft cocktail programs. And, you know, they looked at me and I could hardly even talk about beer and wine. They were like, you aren't ready for this. Um, so I ended up finding a restaurant I really wanted to bartend at, which is a craft burger, uh, blah, blah, blah bourbon bar <laughs> uh, in downtown Minneapolis. And I waited tables there. They were like, you want to bartend here? Why don't you, you know, join the team, wait tables, and like, we'll bring you behind the bar when it's appropriate. Uh, I worked there for a long time and learned a ton about whiskey, uh, a ton about spirits in general. And then I realized that I mostly knew bourbon and I didn't know about any other spirits and people would ask me about tequila or gin and I had nothing to say. So that's why I sought out um, tequila because I knew nothing about it. So I got hired on uh, to bartend at uh, Barrio Minneapolis downtown. It's a really great spot for me because I had my first like full-time uh, volume bartending job and they were known for having like over a hundred different uh, agave spirits and and I learned a ton. I didn't realize that there was so much variety to agave spirits. Um, I gravitated towards the like expensive aged uh, tequilas because they tasted like sweet tequila whiskey kind of a thing. Um, it wasn't until that I had actually moved to New York 
and started working at a mezcaleria in Brooklyn that I really started getting interested in mezcal and ricea and some of the other agave spirits. Um, and yeah, did I answer yeah. your question? Yeah, <laughs> and you and you ended up um, you ended up taking a trip to Mexico. And to explore some of these uh, production methods and also uh, presumably to drink things that you couldn't find in <laughs> New York as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, you guys know Hoku, my, my partner at the time, um, really didn't want to be in New York. Uh, she wanted to get out of the city um, and travel. And I kind of had this weird mentality that like, if I'm gonna, you know, quit my job and take time off from like showing my artwork and whatnot, like I needed to kind of uh, kill two birds with one stone cause I'm kind of a workaholic and I didn't know how to just go gallivanting around the world. I was like, I need to also be studying something and like, I gotta be able to put this, this trip on my resume. So uh, we agreed on Mexico, uh, we bought one way tickets uh, we went to Mexico City first, toured Frida Kahlo's house, which if you get the opportunity, you should do that. It's a museum now. It's absolutely beautiful. I cried when I saw her bed where she died. It was uh, it was <laughs> amazing. Um, but then we spent most of our time in Oaxaca where, um, yeah, we hung out with Los Amantes uh, Distillery, toured their like agave fields. And that was actually really cool um, to get the opportunity to hang out with them at that time because we toured their old facility that was still functioning, which is really tiny. Um, and I had been drinking and selling Los Amantes Mezcal in Brooklyn for some time. And we like got to see the little, like little in comparison to uh, larger facilities like the Tahona wheel. I met the horse that pulled the wheel and had for years and that crushed all of the agaves from the tequila or the mezcal that I had been drinking um, from there. And uh, we got to see all that. And then they also took us to their new facility, which is what they produce out of now, where they kept all of the traditional processes, um, but just made it bigger. They had uh, planted huge agave fields, um, made this huge facility. I want to say they even built like this beautiful like a um, hotel and like an event space. Like they really went all out, uh, and I believe are doing quite well for themselves. But their their products still taste the same because they're still doing the same processes. Like I'm sure there's subtle differences because they might not have the exact same trees and things you know nearby for the the natural fermentation and all that or spontaneous fermentation but that was pretty awesome and mexico's great in general um amazing food and uh the only difficulty for me was that i just really don't speak a lot of spanish i try very hard to learn uh as much as i could before going um i hired like a tutor and I did my darndest, but uh, I wasn't very good at it. And um, it was still an amazing experience anyways. Everyone was super friendly when I try and communicate because uh, I really wanted to get better at speaking Spanish. So I was like, I will speak Spanish. And once I'm there and I'm not in a touristy area, I'm like in you know the mountains of Oaxaca, like I'll just figure it out. But I would start talking and people would just be like, oh, it's going to be easier if I you know, use a little bit of English that I know versus you trying to do whatever you're trying to do. <laughs> they were like, just stop it. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then also, uh, I, we don't need to talk a ton about it. I don't know like all the you know detailed history of printmaking in Mexico specifically, but printmaking uh, or Mexico is known for having some really, really, really talented uh, relief printmaking artists. And while we were in Oaxaca, there was this um, like printmakers crawl going on, but there was, I think seven different printmaking studios in Oaxaca city that all teamed up and made like a little um, uh, passport booklet and it had like a little map and instructions on how to go to each printmaking studio um, in the city to see a demo or to see a show that was up or just tour their space. And then you'd get like a relief stamp print in your passport once you've like completed seeing all of the printmaking studios there, um, which of course I did. Uh, it was wonderful. Some really, really beautiful, really large uh, relief prints there. So, so eventually, out. Uh, eventually we all run out of money when we go on vacations yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, uh, you, you ended up, uh, back here in Chicago. Um, what, uh, what, what, uh, touch why? on what, like, yeah. Why, why the fuck Chicago? Yeah. And, well, so, um, sorry. and also like, uh, how are you involved in the fabric of the art community in Chicago now? So, it wasn't actually coming back to Chicago. I had never really been here, which is bizarre for someone who grew up in Minneapolis, because I think a lot of people go from Minneapolis, either uh, sometimes move to Chicago or will just come to Chicago for a concert or for the weekend or something, because it's so close by and it's a bigger city. Um, and I had only been to Chicago once as a kid, uh, like with my parents to see one of my brother's concerts um, when he was touring here. Um, I moved from Minneapolis to New York and then from New York to Mexico and then ran out of money, <laughs> stayed there <laughs> until I was out almost, almost three months um, before I was out of money. I ran, I was running low in New York too, cause that happens there as well. Um, and then uh, my partner at the time and I were looking into like, where are we going to go next? Um, we ended up going to Minneapolis first because I, uh, stayed with family and bartended to, to save up some money. Cause it's hard to, you know, get an apartment and all that kind of stuff. If you, if you don't have any money at all. Um, and we were looking into like what state we wanted to live in next. And it, we just were looking all over the place, checking out different cities and it, we narrowed it down to Chicago would be cool and Denver would be cool. Which which are we going to do? And then I was checking out Chicago and I discovered the Chicago Printmakers Collaborative and it kind of just seemed like the perfect fit. So I was determined to be here because I wanted to print um, at Chicago Printmakers. Uh, I actually toured that space like six months before I even started printing there. Um, I met Deborah. It's a really cool like Printmaking studios in general, I think, are really cool and unique uh, in compared to like painting studios and like, what am I trying to say? I feel like artists oftentimes, myself included, will kind of like get wrapped up in our work and we'll like hide out and just create art, which is awesome and we love it. But printmaking kind of 
presents this opportunity for artists um, and a need for artists to have a collaborative, cooperative space because it's hard to have a whole printmaking studio in your apartment. Some of the equipment is really expensive. Some things just wouldn't be safe to have in your apartment. Um, some of it literally just wouldn't fit or is too heavy when it comes to like the larger uh, printing presses and stuff. Like they don't fit through doors. Like you have to have a garage door for the really big ones. Um, so artists will have uh, cooperative spaces where people pitch in together or someone amazing like Deborah, you know, organizes the whole thing and gets the space. And then once it's all set up and running and everyone pitches in like a monthly fee to use the facilities and the printmaking equipment, then you have this awesome collaborative space where you have all these artists um, experimenting, working on different projects, like troubleshooting, people help each other out, people are inspired by each other's work. Um, it's really cool. And you meet like a bunch of other people who are super nerdy about the same shit that you're nerdy about. So uh, yeah, yeah, so printmaking in general, I think offers that really cool collaborative kind of teamwork thing, which also you find uh, in the service industry in a really good mm -hmm. restaurant, you have an amazing team. They're not all like that, but they should yeah. be. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's, let's dive into, uh, into some of your work, actually. I Ooh, think cool. that um, I'm ready to look and <laughs> yeah. listener listeners can find some of this stuff or all of what we're about to talk about in the episode notes. So okay. be sure to explore that so that uh, you can have a visual cue for what we're talking about. But um, I asked you to choose three things, uh, three different works uh, to focus on. So yes. let's start with uh, Mia Sorella. Yeah, so Mia Sorella, um, means my sister in Italian. Um, it is one of my favorite prints. It's hard for me to pick one of uh, my pieces. That's my absolute favorite, um, but it's one of my favorite ones. So I chose it for that reason. And because it was the first uh, photo intaglio uh, copper etching that I had done where most of my work I do like the, the traditional etching processes. And this was a point in time where I learned photo etching. It was extremely challenging for me <laughs> to figure out, uh, but I was really determined um, to make it work. So it was sort of like a milestone when I finally got this piece to work. Um, like printmaking, I feel like is an ongoing experiment. Uh, and I like that and it's, taught me to be very like patient and to also go with the flow because sometimes the process will do something you don't really expect and sometimes you have to just like allow that into your art and just make it work. With this piece, I actually scrapped the copper and started all over again three different times, which I've not done with any other piece. Um, one, because copper is expensive, that's just silly. and. And two, I'm usually like too stubborn uh, and, and just want to make it work. With this one, I it was it was ridiculous. So anyways, uh, without getting into all that uh, boringness, um, photo etching is you take your photograph, uh, you adhere a light sensitive film to your copper and you expose that film to a, a two scale positive transparency then you develop that film that's on your copper, then you etch it. So then you have the pixels etched into the plate. Then you do 
what I had talked about before with the acid resist and the etching and the painting with the acid and all that stuff. Um, with this particular one, uh, this piece, um, I was, I was kind of exploring different concepts with like family and family relationships. Um, this uh, piece is a, like my sister and myself modeled for it. Um, I, I was doing uh, like volunteer work at the time with youth who had been uh, removed from uh, abusive or neglective homes uh, by social workers and they were staying in sort of like this in-between place where they like weren't up for adoption but their parents couldn't legally get them back yet or were trying to they were kind of just in this limbo of the system uh and the kids i was volunteering with like eight to twelve so it was a really like difficult and hard time that they were going through and i was with this awesome nonprofit um called free arts minnesota where me and a group of other volunteers would go once a week and do like arts and crafts night with these kids and just try and be positive uh like adult role models that like are consistently showing up in their lives so sort of like a mentorship program um and also with art so anyways that um work that i was doing was influencing my work and then also um my family was going through some turmoil my parents were getting divorced there was a lot of stuff going on um so my work is like at the time was about that those kinds of concepts um, it was also very personal and my earlier work has a lot of like, uh, like the, the other print that we looked at kind of more like childlike creatures and critters and stuff. And it was very personal. This, I feel like was a turning point for my work where it kind of matured a little bit. Um, and though is intended to be universal because it obviously doesn't say like this is bring gleason and her sister across it um but it was also intensely personal for me because it was me and my sister and it was you know about us at the time um so with this piece sorry i'm like rambling about it quite a bit but um something people have asked me about uh with this piece and with other pieces that i was making around this time and maybe in general most of the figures in my artwork either don't have eyeballs or their eyes are closed or their eyes are covered. Um, and that is kind of like a, kind of a hint at a couple of things without, you know, fear of sounding cheesy. It's sort of like love's blindness. Um, but also to kind of show that the figures in this piece are like almost kind of in like a meditative state where they're they're experiencing a very intense emotion and that's not something that they're seeing it's something that they are they're feeling and by having their eyes like obstructed or closed it's sort of like they're they're really like in it you know um as if they were meditating i guess i don't know if that's the right way to describe it um and then so this piece my my sister and i like have our hands out so, like my hand is held out directly under her face and hers is under mine and our mouths are slightly open. And so it's supposed to be sort of like, we're, we're there for each other in a way of like, we're always there to, to lean on each other, to listen, to confide in each other. So it's like all my darkest secrets falling into her hand <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like this, uh, 
of this intangible sort of way, like liquid is sort of falling out of our hands. It's then like surrounding us, like we're in a lake, it's kind of evaporating and then like misting back down. It's just sort of being like completely enwrapped in this really intense sibling bond and and our, our love for each other and like being best friends. Um, so that's what that piece is. And also to not talk about this piece too much, but making this piece was kind of ridiculous uh before i got to the the printmaking part just creating the photograph i had this idea don't really know how i came up with it but i was like hey cora like i'm i'm gonna make this piece it's gonna be awesome i need you to be in the photo with me i'm gonna like braid our hair together and cover our faces and take some pictures and she's like awesome so she comes over and I'm like, I don't have a tripod and I don't have one of those like fancy clicker things to like get my camera to take a picture of me from across the room. So I balanced um, toilet paper rolls up on my toilet because the lighting was right in my bathroom and I also didn't have like uh, additional lights. And I balanced my camera on top of the toilet paper rolls and we sat on the tile floor in front of my toilet and then I braided our hair together and then she had to like lean forward with me so I could reach over and press like the timer uh, to get the photo to take and then lean back without getting our hair to separate. Um, it was ridiculous. And then it leads into my, my second piece that I wanted to talk about uh, after we took all these pictures and we're like trying to keep a straight face and like get this done because it, it was just like difficult and awkward. Uh, we start to like un undo our hair so we can see what we're doing. And I was like, hold on, wait, like this also looks cool. Cause I had propped up also like a mirror so I could see what we were doing like on the toilet. I was like, this looks cool. Let's take another couple pictures. I don't know what I'll do with these ones, which um, I ended up using later for Mia Sorella too, um, for lack of a better title, <laughs> but it's sort of like the sequel to Mia Sorella. Um, which I started working on when I was about halfway done with uh, Mia Sorella, the first piece. Um, it was not to get more like, uh, you know, my artwork is personal and sometimes dark and emo, uh, but my family went through a hardship during that time and my uh, younger cousin actually passed away very suddenly. So that was my first experience with um, like being close to death um, you know, like people that I had known that had died were like friends of the family or people that were much older. I hadn't uh, lost someone abruptly that was like my age or younger than me and someone that I had like grown up with. And so that was really like a difficult time for me. Um, and also just a lot to process, you know, when someone experiences death for the first time, it's a lot. And so I was kind of, uh, I don't know, like uh, obsessed with uh what what happens to us when we die and what happens with the people that are left uh behind when we die and what happens to like our our love and our friendship and these things and i was kind of thinking about it in this way of the love that i have for my siblings um is something that i feel like is like stronger than life itself, you know, kind of like, you know, I, I love you and I die for you. But I was thinking about it in the way which my sister and I are, are super close for both alive. It's like maybe weird that she is in this piece is like about death. Um, 
but it's supposed to be like one or both of us kind of in the afterlife but still still connected um and still kind of like traveling together in a way um so that's what that's about uh, but I also chose that piece to talk about uh, the Mia Sorella too, because I just recently pulled out uh, a print, a uh, proof print from that edition that I had printed back in college that like the paper wasn't quite right, the print wasn't quite done, it didn't get quite enough contrast, so I didn't include it in the edition or sell it, I just kept it. Um, forever with not knowing what I was going to do with it and then. Uh, just the other day, I pulled it out and I started drawing on it and it was like really therapeutic. I kind of like discovered this new kind of drawing that I really like to do, drawing on like an old proof print and giving it new like details. Um, so now it's like I have the photo that turned into the copper plate that turned into the print that now turned into the print that is also a drawing and then I did watercolor on it so it's also sort of a painting and now I also made digital prints of it so I can offer it you know in different sizes and different price points and then just now I discovered this really fantastical uh, metallic like gold enamel uh, that I found in my art supplies and it has this very like royal heavenly kind of magical look to it and i've like um splattered that and like added it to the digital prints so i've like re i've reworked this image like to death <laughs> <laughs> um but the the new one the drawing is called eternal and i think that's going to be the start of a new series not necessarily about the same concepts but with that drawing um and painting style Sorry, awesome. Long no, no, great. <laughs> um, and now the last work that we that is uh, that people could look at um, in the episode notes and that we're going to talk about it comes from kind of a little bit of a different inspiration source, and the function of it was a little bit different as well. Um, yeah. This was a work that you made uh, that I had kind of pseudo commissioned for the 10th Scorch Tundra Festival in Chicago. And it was part of a of an art show that we had uh, on display at the Empty Bottle for the entire month. And it's, uh, it's a little different than what you had done before. Can you, you want to talk a little bit about uh, the ladyfish? Yeah, um, I had to, I had to, you know, include ladyfish in this conversation. Um, because this was one of the first pieces that I did in collaboration um, with your collaborations uh, with Scorch Tundra. Um, it was super fun process. And uh, I kind of went back to like the critter and animal uh, imagery that I've done, you know, uh, a lot previously. And I remember talking to you about uh, Scorch Tundra and how you came up with the name and what that meant. And you were like, well, what would happen if a tundra was scorched? And I was like, oh gosh, it would be water. <laughs> it would be water. Because <laughs> I was like, water. tundra, oh, I guess that'd be frozen and then scorching. Okay, gotcha, cool. So I was trying to, I had, I was trying to think of what critter would live in the scorched tundra environment and would be super metal. 
and so I came to ladyfish, uh, anglerfish, super gnarly, super ugly, badass female fish. Um, and yeah, so that's what I made. But the process was super cool because I hadn't previously made a lot of um, etchings for events or for other people. I usually do commissions that are drawings or paintings, things like that, because it's a faster turnaround um, and it's a more affordable thing to commission. But I really wanted to do an etching for, for your uh, show and exhibition you were having. And I like tried to crank this out. I made it the prints, I made uh, original prints and digital prints. And then I wasn't really planning on printing Ladyfish after the fact. Um, so yeah, I was like, I, did, I, I didn't wanna just put her aside and have her live with all these other copper plates that live like under my bed and like leaned against my walls and all over my apartment, <laughs> on the walls of my apartment. Um, so I decided to preserve her forever for everyone else to see which is something that I've started doing uh, because it was so successful. Um, whenever I make a copper etching, I spend hours and hours and hours working on this metal, like polishing it, carving it, etching it, printing it, reworking it. And then I ink it up. And when I ink it up like that final time and it looks just right, it's like so satisfying and it's so beautiful. Then I print it. And though the, the prints are beautiful as well, um, they're not quite the same. The contrast is different because I'm used to looking at the ink with the copper versus the ink on paper. And I usually like the copper more than I actually like the prints. So what I did is I inked Ladyfish one last time and then I let the ink dry in the lines. Um, I actually took, I inked her at Chicago Printmakers Collaborative and then I brought her home and I created, um, like a cover for her to keep dust off of her so she could just dry in peace. And I had to take her like in an Uber uh, while she was all inked up, like trying to not touch her and like disturb uh, the, the ink that I had put on. Um, after she was all dry, then I coated her in a high gloss clear epoxy, uh, like the like you would cover like a table or a bar top with. Um, so it sealed her in. The, the glossiness kind of almost makes it look like she's underwater. And then she's easy to like clean off um, if she gets dusty. And all of those little tiny details, all of the ink is perfectly preserved. So it's sort of like exactly what the printmaker gets to see right before they print. I'm now kind of capturing and sealing in. And I'm, I just finished another, just a little like feather etching that I did that process too. And I plan on going back to some of my older works. And after printing them a couple more times, I plan to do the same process of uh, inking them and sealing them and then displaying them. Um, I probably won't display all of them, you know, in environments like the empty bottle. But that was also really fun because I've shown my work in a mix of spaces. But uh, around that time with Scorched Tundra, I was showing my work in like in Kumas, like heavy metal restaurants and having craft markets. And then I was showing it like with Scorched Tundra. It was fun to have a different crowd of people get to interact with my work and seeing Ladyfish at Empty Bottle during Scorched Tundra with like super loud heavy metal music playing uh, and having other people like check out the work. And I told you guys about like my favorite moment. I was like 
kind of hovering by the bar, like watching people watch my artwork, where I was like, I wonder if these like metalheads are gonna are gonna dig this like copper etching or not. And this one guy was like drinking his beer and kind of like starting to like nod his head. And he was really like looking at Ladyfish and he gets really close looking at her and he leans back and then he just starts headbanging and he puts up the horns and is like full, like flipping his hair back and forth, really headbanging and like spilling his beer a little bit but he's not doing it towards the stage. He's doing it at Ladyfish, <laughs> like almost banging into her. I was like, oh my God, it was amazing. I really wish that I had like captured that on my phone, but it just like happened. And I was like, oh my God, I've never seen someone interact with my artwork in that way. And that was, uh, that was pretty awesome. So thank that you, Alexi, for that opportunity. Yeah, that's a really incredible interaction. And that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of, thing that you wouldn't imagine your work to have when you put it in spaces that you're really familiar with, right? It takes yeah. in some ways for you to imagine it to be decontextualized in order for someone else to experience it. But for that person, they had their aha moment then where they were yeah. like, yeah, like this fish yeah. knows what I'm feeling. I know what the <laughs> fish is feeling. Like, let's rock out. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, almost obsessed with getting my artwork into different kinds of spaces um, still and like since then because uh, I feel like when I was graduating college I had this like need to be uh, so professional and I pictured my work and showed my work in uh, a lot of galleries and I still do that and I and I want to do that more um, but it, it is such a specific environment with all white walls and all this matching framed, you know, artwork and people kind of passing by kind of like a library, like you're not supposed to be too noisy, you're supposed to just observe. And I enjoy that environment. Um, but it's really fun and cool to put your artwork in different spaces and get different people to look at it. Um, so yeah, it's a difficult thing to do right now in the time of COVID obviously, because uh, people aren't going into, packing into spaces and going to concerts and whatnot, but uh, I'm still trying. <laughs> I'm bringing my artwork over to um, Transistor Chicago uh, in Andersonville. If you guys haven't been there, it's like a art gallery, gift shop, uh, record store, um, and they're rearranging and are going to put up Guess who? Ladyfish. Oh, um, oh yeah. <laughs> you, uh, and, you, pre uh, you preempted like kind of one of my last questions here, actually. And that yeah. is, um, where can people find your art now? I know that uh, your print studio is also doing the small print show this uh, yeah. this winter. Is that something that like can people find your work there? Where can people find you? Yeah. So a couple of different uh, places right now you can find my work. Uh, the Chicago Printmakers Collaborative every year does the small print show, which I know uh, you've attended, uh, I think, several years now. It's a really awesome exhibition they do every year with small prints. Um, they range in uh, different kinds of printing processes, different subject matter. There's no theme other than the prints are small. Oftentimes with the smaller prints, some of them are more affordable, um, depending on the artist and like you know, the complexity of the work. Some of the pieces are uh, more expensive, but it's great because it's right before the holidays. So check it out. Uh, go to chicagoprintmakers.com or to their Facebook or their Instagram. Um, they are doing uh, like scheduled 
viewings of the show because of COVID. They've been super, super um, safe and COVID conscious, like sanitizing. I actually haven't been printing at the Chicago Printmakers Collaborative um, since COVID started here. I've been printing at home uh, just to give this, the space to other people because it's really limited access right now. Um, but yeah, you can view work online and you can set up an appointment to go and view it at the studio. I'm also bringing my work over to Transistor Chicago um, and you can go check it out there. I don't know if they're scheduling anything. I think it's just first come first serve. People wander through, but they're definitely doing like a limited capacity. So if you go, it's a pretty open space, um, wear a mask and uh, they won't let a bunch of people crowd in there. So you should be okay if you want to do that. Um, you can also check out my artwork on my Etsy store which is something that I have set up um, during the COVID times and something that I should have had set up, uh, you know, like 15 years ago, but I finally did it better late than never. Um, so you can find me on Etsy and then also check out my Instagram because I'm uh, getting a lot better about documenting my process um, and I'm pretty active on there these days. So my Instagram is Bryn underscore Gleason. So check it out. And I'm also always um, super down to talk to people about printmaking. I've had several different artists um, like reach out to me that I've never met before. People like in different countries who are like, hey, you did a process. I don't know what that is. Like, how do you do it? Um, so yeah, reach out to me, ask me questions um, or commission me to make stuff for your house or for your band or your restaurant or your podcast. Um, I'm here. I'm making stuff. So let's do it. <laughs> and and uh, you can also find Bryn's work as a part of uh, Heavy Hops episodes every week, right? Yep. Well, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Bryn. This was a, a pleasure getting to know you and getting to know your work. And uh, as I mentioned for everyone that's listening, um, check out the episode notes. There's links to everything that we've talked about there. So pull all that up, make sure that you, while you're listening, you've got the visual content to follow so that you can get the full story. So thanks, Bryn. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>